Uh, the way the Lord demonstrates his faithfulness is through his word, which never fails, through his word. Romans chapter 1, we continue through these opening verses of the letter and our study. Romans 1. Beloved, Christianity is a faith that is worldwide. The Christian faith is worldwide. Followers of Christ are found in every country, every corner of the globe. You find them in the ancient east, the developed west, the cold north, and the hot south. There are disciples of Jesus Christ all over this sphere. Now, it's true that other religions and movements have a degree of spread. That is true. We're not denying that. There are, of course, Muslims outside of the Middle East. There are Buddhists this side of the Atlantic. You will find witches in cities and in the country. And you will, sadly, find cults in many more places than isolated farms. Yes, those movements do spread. Those false faiths may appear at times to be growing. And often that is because global inhabitants are always looking for something. Residents of this sphere are looking to belong. They're looking for identity. They're looking for a system and meaning. Is that not true? Where do I belong? And false faiths certainly peddle identity, don't they? They peddle identity. That's the upfront draw. And so with various dashes of force, deception, and fear, yes, indeed, they can spread. However, false faiths may indeed spread, but beloved, you know this, Christian, you know this, they do not save. They do not save. More to the point of the text in front of us, they may transmit, the false faith transmits, but it does not transform. False faiths can spread with converted people looking different, engaged in different behaviors, that is true, but what they are not and what it is not is a faith where people are different. They are different. A faith where they are transformed. Only one faith, one way leads to that, and that is the Christian faith. Faith in Jesus Christ alone. Only that faith that continues to be proclaimed in all the world is the true faith that saves and transforms people. The faith that makes them new onto new life. Praise God. That is why the Christian faith is truly a worldwide faith because it impacts the world. It is a way of faith where its disciples are not hollow, not walking around as shells, doing strange things, wearing odd robes, engaged in rites and rituals, looking apart. No, the Christian faith is a faith where its disciples are new creations, regenerated beings. Disciples of Christ are transformed from the inside out, no longer the dead walking. Followers of the true Jesus impact the world because their lives proclaim Christ. And it is that living proclamation with transformed lips that declare the gospel. 
It is that good news, that real salvation, changing life and hope completely that is proclaimed in all the world. And beloved, that was the same reality 2,000 years ago. It was being proclaimed out of Rome, the epicenter of the ancient world. And it was spreading out of Rome. Transformed Romans being saved by Christ, now living for him and then going, sent and going, going into all the highways, going into the byways, flowing out of that ancient metropolis. Let us read of that testimony, which is open before us, and let's consider the implications of this Roman testimony this morning. Look down at verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. This, of course, the all of you, verse 7, all those in Rome, called to be saints, loved by God. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far I've been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would take these words that you have breathed out and make them real and active in our lives. Lord, let us see, receive, apply, and live so that you would receive glory indeed in all the world. Amen. In verse 8, as you look at it there, Paul says to the Romans, your faith, that is what is proclaimed in all the world, your faith. In these verses, by way of the testimony, not only of the Roman faith, but we will see also of Paul's faith, we will see what is involved, West Mount, in a ministry of proclamation. That's where we're going this morning, a ministry of proclamation. What makes it so? Here then we'll consider four elements of a ministry of proclamation. Four elements of a ministry of proclamation. Let's hurry now to the first. Number one is thankfulness. Verse 8, thankfulness. Verse 8 again. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Look at it. First, Paul says to open here, first... We could say foremost or above all, I thank my God. Do you see that? I thank my God. Of the 13 letters that were certain Paul wrote in the New Testament, 12 of them begin this way. With thankfulness, either noting thanks to God, as Paul does here, or a blessing of thanks, as we see in Ephesians by one example. And he does that for those that he's writing to, a prayer of thanksgiving or a blessing to those that he's writing to. The only letter, by the way, some of you I know are wondering, what's the other letter? It's Galatians. And we studied Galatians in Galatians as what? It's like a 911 letter 
right? So Paul gets right down to it. There is some grave false teaching, another gospel there, and he needs to get right to it in that short letter. So why do we mention that, that this is a common greeting? Because there's an evident pattern that needs to be noted here. And it's this, first Paul gets right to thankfulness. Friends, we need to see the obvious truth as you read your New Testament. The priority of Paul's communication is thankfulness. In church, what we must see in verse 8 is the instrument of that thankfulness. So it's not just that Paul is thankful. Let's see the instrument of that thankfulness. Look again. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Do you see that? Through Jesus Christ. Look at it. Through Jesus Christ. Beloved, apart from Jesus Christ, we could say it this way. There is no thankfulness really or truly. There is no thankfulness. Without him, there's no reconciliation and access to the Father, fundamentally. Without him, we have no new life, no new will that aches and beats to be thankful. It's impossible. And Paul here points to the mediatory, priestly work of the second person of the Trinity. Later in this same letter, in Romans 8.34, Paul will remind us, listen to this, that Christ Jesus is the one who died, was raised, and is now at the right hand of God, listen, interceding for us. That's mediatory work. That's priestly work that he's doing on our behalf. In fact, to be more pointed, that is granting us access to the Father. Have you considered that? Your access in prayer to say thank you, to even engage in the prayers you did this morning or tonight, is only possible because of Christ and his intercessory work. There is no other way you can approach the Father. Jesus, through Jesus, through Christ. Church, the offering and reception of our thankfulness is conditioned on our relationship to Jesus Christ. That is what Paul is communicating here. That means thankfulness offered to God, but not through the access and mediation of the Christ is meaningless. That's right. It's empty because it goes nowhere and has no effect. Because it's cloaked instead of the pure righteousness of Christ, what is it cloaked in? As Bill reminded us this morning, our filthy righteousness. And that's unacceptable to God. There's no way we can get to God with that. We need the conduit, the divine mediatory tunnel of Jesus Christ, that instrument, that access. That's what Paul is communicating here. Beloved, I can't press this enough in this age, this day. Our righteousness falls short. Believe me, it is impotent before a holy God. We'll see this in Romans 3. As we will learn there, that is why our only hope is the righteousness of God. It is given, what have we covered already, in the gospel of God, from him and about him. And here we're learning now, we're going to see another element today, through Jesus Christ. From God, about God, through Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God manifests in the second person of the Trinity, the person and work of the Son of God. His work in righteousness is the God-man, beloved, is not only our hope, salvation, and access. 2 Timothy 4 is the only hope for all the world. Whether or not they recognize that hope is a different story, but the reality is it is the only hope for the world, Jesus Christ and his righteousness. 
Through Christ, then, not only do we have grounds for thankfulness, but we have means for it. Grounds and means for thankfulness. And thankfulness is the first and foremost piece of a ministry proclamation here. Thankfulness offered here, verse 1 again, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. That's where the thankfulness is sourced. Because of this proclaimed global faith, or the Roman faith proclaimed in all the world. In other words, I'm offering up thanks, Roman saints, because of your faith. The only kind of faith that is worthy and powerful enough for wide proclamation. This is faith, again, proclaimed in all the world. If you look at that expression there, proclaimed in all the world, it's like saying far and wide, right? Like saying far and wide. This is faith in the center of the world at the time going out to all the world. That's what he's getting at. This is faith, by the way, not just going out from Rome, but Jerusalem and other cities. It's the same faith. Faith with that kind of spread and power then can only be divinely inspired and divinely given. There's no other way. As such, this is the same faith in Rome that is in Jerusalem, that is far, that is wide, that is being proclaimed. And thus Paul is thankful. Thankful again through Jesus Christ. The one that saved him now is the one he's offering up thanks through for the scope of faith. And this is the foremost element of Paul's ministry of proclamation. See it, beloved. Thankfulness. Thankfulness. Westmount Saints, these verses, and we will see here, this verse confronts us this morning. What of us? We always must ask that of the text. What of us? Are you, first of all, would you say, first, I am thankful? Does your ministry, your walk, begin with thankfulness? Is that where it starts? Are you thankful that this same faith continues to be proclaimed today? Or are you more concerned with angst and complaint about false faith? Or, rather than thankfulness, it is fretfulness about false proclamation. Listen, I understand, right? I'm in this region with you. I understand the fret over the false faith that emanated out of our public library yesterday. I'm fretting there with you. But what we need to do is to replace, take that fret and turn it to thankfulness for the true faith. Why? Listen, that, whatever that religion is, being pumped into our children, listen, false faith, that false faith is at work, there's no doubt, but it is impotent, beloved. It has an expiry date. Look, I'm not saying it makes everything go away. It will fail. And a day of reckoning is coming. The faith of the Roman saints then is the same faith we Westmount have here in Peterborough today as all this ungodliness unfolds around us. It is the same faith that continues and sustains and is bellowed. It's the same good news that started, remember, in the garden, Genesis 3.15, the first good news proclaimed. It's the same faith of Abraham, David, Paul, Polycarp, Luther, Ryle, and you. It's the same faith that continues to be proclaimed and spread in all the world. And let me ask you something this morning. Is it stopping? 
No. There are lost souls saved every day. Praise the Lord. It cannot be stopped. The same faith far and wide, above and underground, common to us all. And a ministry of proclamation begins here with thankfulness for that truth. That's the first element. Let's now turn to the second. Thankfulness, second, verse 9 and 10, service. Service. We continue in verse 9. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. As we mentioned last week, Paul had not visited Rome yet upon writing this letter. He had plans to visit after his trip to Jerusalem. He's en route to Jerusalem as he pens this letter. And then remember, from there, it was west and, of course, Spain. That's where he had his sights set, the untouched Spain. Paul testifies then in verse 9 because he hasn't seen them. He doesn't have the relationship that he does with other churches. This makes sense then. Look at verse 9. He says, for God is my witness. That is serious, solemn testimony to a group he had not yet met face to face. That's what, why it makes sense. Now, that is not serious, Serious that's opposed to loose or informal in other churches. That's not what's being talked about here. It's not that kind of serious. This is serious as opposed to intimate. You see that? He had intimate relationship with other churches, not Rome. So this is a seriousness that's needed in the wake of intimacy, which is clear in Paul's other letters. Other churches he has planted or visited as such, no solemn oath like this is needed. And certainly none with the size of Rome. Yet even though Paul is not intimate with Rome, look at what he says at the end of verse 9. This is incredible, incredible. Without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers. This is exceptional. I mean, if nothing else, it tells you the depth of Paul's prayer life, does it not? Without ceasing to a people I have never been face to face with, I pray for you. I always mention you in my prayers. Incredible. His associates, Paul's associates, often called his apostolic troop, is well documented. You get those, of course, in Colossians 4 or even at the end of this letter, Romans 16. Yet, this is prayers now beyond that group. And I want you to think about the Apostle Paul for a moment. Paul was a busy apostle, was he not? I think if anyone in the New Testament was busy, it would be Paul. Yet, he was not too busy to pray like this. Look at it unceasingly for saints in another city, in another part of the world, that he had not yet met and known. That fact speaks for itself, by the way. Just considering it indicts our own prayer excuses, does it not? That is prayer quantity, but also note here, let's now see this. Note the prayer quality. That was the prayer quantity. Let's look at the prayer quality at the end of verse 10. In prayer... Asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. So there's a yearning to come to them, yes, but look at the manner here. Paul says, by God's will. And Westman, we can never be reminded of this too much. No matter how much you've heard about God's will, we need to be reminded why. Because we have a very strange habit of inserting our will into everything, don't we? We're all about inserting our will. We do it and we don't even know we're inserting our will into it. So we need these reminders. 
When our Lord taught his disciples to pray, he gave them a model. He said, pray like this. This is the way that you are to pray. This is the manner of your prayer. In Matthew 6.10, he said, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Who are you speaking to? Recognizing him first. And then what? Your kingdom come, your will be done. Right off the bat, orienting our will to his. Of course, Jesus didn't just say it. He modeled it. Do you remember later in the garden, Matthew 26, 42? What did he say on his knees in the garden? Father, on the eve of his crucifixion, Father, if this cup, bearing the wrath, the cup of wrath, if this cup cannot pass until I drink it, what? Your will be done. He he said it. He modeled it. Following Jesus, later James would say this with respect to boastful proclamations. You know James 4.15. He says this, what you ought to say, James says, what you ought to say if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. That must be the framework of your entire life. Yes, man makes his plans, the proverb says, but who establishes the steps? God, you may have a plan, but God says, no, this is my ordinance. This is my ordinance. So like thankfulness without Christ, so let's do this. Like thankfulness without Christ, so too prayers without God's will are ineffective. I hope that makes sense. Thankfulness without Christ is akin to prayers without God's will. You remove the instruments in both cases and are both rendered impotent and mute. I pray that straightforward. So-called prayer, and we do need to call it that, so-called prayer, according to our will, is not prayer at all. By the way, and this is because it needs to be filtered through my own mind and life at this very moment, any prayer that just begins with God, I need, I want, is already going in the wrong direction. Almighty God, your will be done. And then we plea. And then we plea. So Paul models this here. Now the seriousness of Paul's ministry and the divine alignment of Paul's ministry, these are both aspects that flow out of a heart now as we keep going in the text that we can't miss. And the heart of these outputs is found in verse 9. Look at it. For God is my witness. We looked at that. Here it is. Whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. Paul says, look at it. He serves God with what? His spirit, that, that is rightly translated, I believe in most of your translations, is a lowercase s. That's correct. This is not the Holy Spirit. Although the Holy Spirit is, of course, involved, right, in the Christian spirit, so to speak, and we'll unpack that in a moment. But the Holy Spirit is not who Paul is referring to here. It is true in a broader sense, remember, having renewed Paul's spirit, the Holy Spirit's the one that's renewed his spirit, the Holy Spirit Christian is the one that's renewed your spirit. So that's true in a broad sense. But what Paul is referring to here by my spirit is his inner man, the core of his being. We get this terminology because we, we say things like this, oh, his spirit is down, her spirit is up. She put all her spirit into it. This is, this is what's being communicating here. This is, for the Christian, the peace of our human composition that is renewed by the Holy Spirit, but is now in our domain of volition and will. This is important, meaning the inner spirit, the inner spirit, 
the will that is all of Paul's heart and soul, his energy. This is the inner man, now renewed, now in his control, so to speak. Again, precisely, you would say, this is his volition, this is his energy, this is his will, given by God. So let's be clear about that. He wouldn't have it if God didn't regenerate it and renew it and give it. But it is now, all of that inner man, Paul, is to be used for God, to serve him. Paul here is saying that about the inner man. Listen to it elsewhere, to a different church, to the Philippians. Listen to this in Philippians 2. Listen carefully to the language, and I think you'll pick it up. And note this again about Paul not being with them as he writes this. He's in jail as he writes these letters to a group he knows, this letter, the Philippian letter. Philippians 2, 12, listen to this. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence... Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, which just simply means you've been saved. Now work out the implications of that salvation, right? For, verse 13, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, it is God who has saved you, that has given you a new spirit. He's regenerated your spirit. Now work that out. In your inner man, work that out and serve him. That's what's going on here too. Christian, our service to God is a working out of what he has first given to us. And Paul is noting that here. Paul has service in view, but not just service in acts and works and deeds. This is service that resides in us. Service, let's not miss this, that is the sum and total of our being. This is totality. For further confirmation, you can turn to Romans 12 later in this letter. Let's, we'll peek at this hinge verse or two often, I think. But let's do so this morning. This is precisely the launch point for Paul's practical piece of the letter. He's going to get at this aspect of the inner man as he launches into the practical piece. The well-known verses here, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Listen to this. I appeal to you, therefore... Now, in the weeks, months ahead, God willing, we're going to unpack all of the therefore, the gospel and justification and sanctification in chapters 1 to 11. In light of that, then, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to what? Here's the implication of the gospel. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Now, look at this. Which is your spiritual worship? That word is the same word used in Romans 1. Nine, it's service. Some of your versions have reasonable service. They say, which is your reasonable service? The idea then is, and here it is, this is what Paul is getting to. We have it confirmed in this letter. Your whole life, not only is it placed on the altar as a sacrifice to God, but you give everything, every part of it to God. As we say so often here at Westmount, there's no compartments that you hold back from the service to God. There's no dark corner, I pray, There's no inner recess. There's no just, well, God, you understand this bit of time that I do. There's none of that. That actually is incongruent to the Christian life. You give all with all your being and your inner man. It's all given to God. That's what Paul is talking about here. That spiritual worship, that spiritual service is complete wholehearted service. Beloved, this is service in the ministry of proclamation. This is how you serve God. This is Paul's ministry. This is why Paul is who he is and what he charges others to do, other disciples to do. This is wholehearted service. 
The word of God, let's be clear, is not communicating half-hearted service here. We want it to, don't we? We would be very comfortable with half-hearted service because it fits into our calendar and our flesh. But the word of God never communicates that. It's wholehearted service. Listen, Paul didn't fit in Christian service around his other activities, did he? Service was all of his being. And why? Look at verse 9. Paul says, whom I serve with my spirit in, look at this location now, in the gospel of his son. Let's not miss the argument as Paul works through this. Paul's service was all of his being because now his being was found where? In Jesus, in Christ. The gospel of God, remember, is also known as the gospel of his son, Christ. Westman, there's no contradiction here, only complement and completion. This is the gospel, if we pull even higher, this is the gospel of the triune God. The gospel of God is from God, his plan, and it's the gospel about God, and specifically God the Son, the one through whom the saving work is done. The good news is Christ's good news because of his work to redeem the lost. It is the Son Coming down, the son that took on humanity, the son that lived God's law perfectly, the son that gave his perfect life in the place of ruined sinners. It's a son's life that was then raised in power. Verse 4, remember? Raised in power. What a declaration. That resurrection, the first fruits of those that would follow the Christ. Christian, like you and me, all those that forsake their own life and righteousness, repent of it, and place their faith and trust in the Son of God. As such, their life is found in Him. Not just its salvation, by the way. So often, right? A very modern sensibility. I've got Jesus for eternity. Now I can go on living. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. No, you've been bought. You're not your own. Not just at salvation, not just on that judgment day, and we praise God for that, but this is union with Christ, beloved. Listen, every day, every minute, from 12 to 1 o'clock today, Christ owns you. From 7 to 8 tonight, Christ owns you. If you're up 1 to 2, I would suggest you probably shouldn't be tonight, Christ owns you. Tuesday at 9 o'clock, Christ owns you. Beloved, there's no domain where Christ doesn't own you. And my exhortation to you today is you live in light of that. You live as if you've been bought because you have been. You live as if your life is not your own, it's Christ. And you honor him in everything you do. Thought, word, and deed. You honor him. You honor him. Follower of Jesus, if that is you, if that is you, You are united with the Son of God. Do you grasp the implications of that? You are united with the Son of God. You have union with Him. Are you living in light of that fact? That's the ministry of proclamation. That's what it entails with our service. It's not a duty and a task. It's not just a hot meal or a a nice to-do. It's everything you do all the time with all of your heart. That's wholehearted service. And that's the second one. Third one is support and ministry of proclamation. Support. Look at verse 11. For I long to see you 
that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Look at that again. I long to see you. Paul reiterates his desire to be in Rome with the saints there. And here, he states one reason why he's longing to see them. Look at the end of verse 11. That I, so that, here's the reason, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Listen, friends, Paul knows the economy of the household of God. Right? He was given inspired words about it. He knows the economy of God's house. And this expression demonstrates it. For one, Paul knows that as a slave of Christ, he has spiritual gifting. Everyone bought by Christ, infused and regenerated by the Holy Spirit, right, has been given spiritual gifting. Spiritual gifting, as 1 Corinthians 12, 7 calls it, a manifestation of the Spirit. That is spiritual gifting that is given, the text says, for the common good. We've covered this in our foundations class downstairs multiple times. In Exodus 31, we covered this with abilities, gifts given by God. Gifts, abilities, spirit-filled giftedness from God to be used for God. Now here it is. This may reveal something for us. The text doesn't tell us what gift of Paul. That's only our sensibilities and fascinations, right? Well, what gift is it? Let's have Paul fill out a chart. What is that, right? That's just our own fascinations. That's not the text is not getting at that. The text just assumes Paul has a composition as a man of God and he's going to go and it'll come out. Remember Jeremy reminded this of us this downstairs. You just you serve and it comes out. You just serve and you will know. In the same way Paul is re- referring generally to this. I have giftedness he says. I want to impart to you. The point of the text beloved look at it is not specifics. Likely, this is just a reference to the economy, a reminder by Paul that he has something of the Spirit. Because he's of the Spirit, he has something of the Spirit now to impart to Roman saints. And that spiritual gift or giftedness, whatever it may be, or whatever the composition is, the purpose of it is to strengthen the Roman saints. And that's the emphasis. So did, you know, did Paul diagnose it correctly? No. Are you using it to edify, to build up? To encourage and strengthen the saints. That's the emphasis of giftedness. What you're doing with it. As mentioned, Paul knows how this all works. In fact, just before... Do you know the letter that very likely Paul wrote before this letter? was the Corinthian letter. Corinthian letter, 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. Very likely, so it's just fresh on his mind. He knows, of course, how this works in the economy of God. Thus, Paul would also have understood... The realities, the divine realities of spiritual gifts. And let's mention two. Number one that comes out in this text. Number one, you can't impart them from afar, can you? Oh, how we'd like to. Oh, how many excuses are made that we can do that today. But you just can't. I mean, the text is so clear, is it not? Paul is saying, I can't do this from a distance. I would just love at times, I mean, allowing me to embellish for a moment, I'd just love to see Paul with Zoom or some technology, right? What are you talking about? I don't care if you have more than that. I need to be with them. You can't impart gifts from afar. He longs, he says he longs to be with them for the purpose of imparting. Two, spiritual gifts are given to all saints. Look at the text for mutual benefit. Look at verse 12. Don't miss this. That is, Paul catches himself, if you will, here to say, look, let's be clear on spiritual gifting. 
that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. You notice the back and forth here. He gets that. This is mutual benefit. This is reciprocation, back and forth, stated in two ways in this verse for emphasis. And we need that emphasis today, don't we? Oh, we need it. Beloved, this is support, support within the ministry of proclamation. This is Paul, here it is, imparting gifts to Rome, but Rome imparting gifts to Paul. Do you see that? That is the back and forth relationship. This is the skeletal system of ministry. There's no spiritual delivery men here popping in to dispense a gift. Let's call on the spiritual gift professional to just bless us with this spiritual gift. And then off he goes to some other church. That's not what you see in the New Testament. Paul gets it. Let's be together. Let's do economy together in the household of God and impart gifts to strengthen one another. Paul now is going to put all of this together in verse 13. Look at it with me. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Paul stresses the intensity of his efforts to come. You can see that in the verse. The barriers to coming. I've, I've tried it. I've been prevented. He wants to come. He's making his case here. Likely they would have known that, but he states it in the letter. But then he lands on what he's missing because he hasn't arrived yet. Let's not forget this. He states very clearly there's something missing because he hasn't been physically with them. Look at it. That I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Notice how Paul ties his coming, his presence, his ministry among and with, his giftedness. He ties that all to what? Fruit. Do you see that? By extension, we could say, how can there be lasting fruitfulness when you're apart? That would be one. But in other words, the apostle recognizes that his being there with them, he knows this is the key. Do you see that? As he launches into this letter, he wants to make this clear. I've wanted to come. And my coming and being with you is everything in terms of reaping the harvest that comes from that mutual economy. Now listen, let's be clear. This doesn't mean there's nothing gained unless there's physical. Can we be clear about that? Oftentimes I feel like I have to put emphasis on places and stress things. And people say, well, what about this? Are you saying at the exclusion of that? We're never saying that. The problem is the pendulum has swung so far for us in all these directions that often you need to beat it back to the center. You know what I mean? And emphasize it. And here, what we're saying is, yes, there can be. Let me give you one way of long-distance encouragement. Look down at the letter in front of you. That's it, right? He wrote this letter. Listen, that is inspired words given not just for Rome, but for all of us, you and I. So there is blessing there, but the point of the text is there cannot be the true harvest, the reaping, the fruit without being there. The point seen here, and let's be pointed, is that ministry support is rooted in being together. Do you see, by the way, the last two, three years, it's not about one verse, it's about the entire tenor of Scripture. A ministry of proclamation is not just a bunch of different remote financial support. Dispense the spiritually good persuasive guy to go and drum up money. No, it's not that. A ministry of proclamation is not just a supporting regular email sent out. We're in touch. 
Ministry of proclamation is not even just prayer support. In fact, this letter testifies to it. It's not. It can't be just that. It needs that. But it's not all of that. No, support that is found in ministry is support that is lived out and bears fruit. Interestingly, in the Philippian letter we looked at, he will say later, I want the fruit to your credit. I want a re- There's a, a harvesting, a reaping of me being there, of the gift. I want the fruit that comes from that. And that's exactly what's being said here. There's an effectiveness, there's a fruit that comes that strengthens and builds up the church. Westmount, we know that, don't we? We've seen that. Paul says, I long to see you, Rome, for strength and mutual encouragement. Paul says, and so I've intended to come in order that I may reap a harvest. That's ministry support. One last one, one last ministry element that remains. We've seen thankfulness, service, support, and now obligation. Obligation. And before we get into this final point, to understand the framework of this section, we need to peek back at verse 13. So let's do that. There, Paul completed his thoughts on his ministry support with a reminder on his mission field, his ministry field. Do you see it? The Gentiles. Always associated with Paul and his ministry, the Gentiles. A word behind that is ethnos, where we get our word ethnicity. That's often the word of Gentiles that you see in the New Testament. In other words, that word there represents nations, nations, we mean by Gentiles. The word in the New Testament stands for, and here it is, nations, or the nations that are not Israel. That's really the key here. The nations that are not Israel, hence you get Jew and Gentile. It's like Jew and then the other nations, that's what's in view here. Gentile then, not just a people group, but all the other people groups outside Israel. And that's important to bear in mind. All the other people groups that make up Gentile. And here, Paul references those outside Israel, the Gentiles, that ministry field. Paul specifically has in view here that ministry that Rome is a part of. Rome, remember what did we say earlier? The epicenter of the nations in the ancient world. The nations would be flowing through Rome. And Paul has them in view here. And this is a detail we often can gloss by quickly with the oversight we have. The 2,000 years later oversight, we can gloss this quickly. But listen, let's remind ourselves of this so that we understand these passages rightly. Prior to the ministry of Christ, first century, the good news was available to all, right? Available to all, but not proclaimed to all. You see the difference? The good news was available to all, but it wasn't proclaimed to all. I just read Isaiah 52 this morning, right? You get embedded in there hints of what is coming, what will be. But initially, that good news, that euangelion, was proclaimed to who? The Jew. The Jew. What is mind-blowing often, as we talked about at length at West Mountain for the Jew here in the first century, is that now the proclamation is going out to all. But let's look at it now. It was good news for the Jew first, proclaimed through the prophets for Israel. But then Jesus came. He freed a Gentile demoniac, remember, in Mark 5. Do you remember the Canaanite woman or daughter in Matthew 15? Do you remember then the widening that was cemented in the Great Commission in Matthew 28? If it wasn't clear, disciples in first century, let it be clear with Jesus' words, make disciples of what? All nations. Crystal clear. As such, recall Paul's specific commission in Acts 9 to go to the nations, go to the Gentiles. And that, of course, is what lies behind Paul's heart here in this verse as he writes to Rome. Now then, 
Let's visit these last two verses here to wrap it up. Verse 14, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. We notice first the Gentile scope. Look at verse 14, Greeks and barbarians. Greeks, as you look at that term, was originally pointing to those of Greek lineage. It originally pointed that one day, that it would have been a few centuries before, before Alexander the Great basically ran roughshod over much of the known world. And what did he do in his wake? He left Greek culture. So you hear Hellenistic culture, that's just a Greek word for Greek. Basically saying he left that imprint in culture. So there would have been a Greek, an ethnic Greek before, but then there was a cultural Greek. And that's one of the legacies of Alexander the Great, is that nations that weren't Greek had Greek culture. So that's why you see Greek often in the New Testament, to represent nations, because it was culture. But look what Paul does here. So he says, those of Greek culture, those with almost the, we could say, the the middle-classness of the ancient world, you Greek-infused cultural people. But then he goes more. Look what he says next. Barbarians. Paul very deliberately here says, goes and says, not even just you, Hellenistic Greeks, right, cultured in the Greek, I'm pointing to the uncultured, as it would have been referred to in the time, the barbarians. By barbarians, basically two are in view here, the enemies, right, the savages, so to speak, or the real uncultured, untouched people, like those in Spain. They would have considered them barbarians, the people of the north. So look what Paul does in this sweep, the cultured and the uncultured, but he does more. Look in verse 14. He names the wise and the foolish. And this is excellent. What Paul does here is basically says, if you didn't get that, you're definitely going to get this because all of mankind falls in one of two buckets. All of mankind is either a wise or a fool. So this is everybody. Paul reaches back to Psalms and Proverbs for those well-known categories of all men The wise, at least in the world's eye, and they're fools, but the wise in God's sight, right, are what is needed. Salvation, the gospel to make men wise. So in the eyes of the world, you could be wise or fools, but the gospel has in view something bigger. Paul says, in essence, this is my ministry field. And here's the point of that sweep. There's no kind left out. Paul wants to be clear. It's not like you could be sitting and reading the letter and say, oh, he actually didn't get me, so I've got stuff to do. No, he has a mission field to all, all kinds, all types. In a big city like Rome, filled with Greeks and barbarians, wise and fools, Paul says, look at verse 15, I'm eager to preach the gospel to those Greeks, to those barbarians, to those wise, to those fools, to you also who are in Rome. I trust, Christian, we in a similar world today are also eager as we look out. Is that your heart? Are you eager to share the gospel? Are you reserved? There's all kind of fruit that awaits harvest in this Gentile-laden world. However, if, let's end with this, if your approach to a ministry of proclamation is only eagerness, then it would be easy to neglect, would it not? Eagerness will not get you very far, will it? It's easy to overlook. It's, It's easy to excuse. Is it not eagerness? It's easy to excuse. That's not my jam. That's not my thing. Bob's a really good guy at doing that. I just have things to do. I'm not an evangelist. I don't have that kind of eagerness. With that in mind, let's not leave this passage then without seeing the reality of ministry. And before, some of you think we overlooked it in verse 14. 
Let's look at the charge. It's true of all Christ sent ones, apostles and all. Verse 14, Paul says, I am under what? Obligation. This is the obligation of duty. This is a very clear word that Paul uses here. Again, as if to say, make no mistake. This is my charge. It's an obligation. That word, by the way, in the original means to be under a debt. You can't get out of that debt. You're in it. You're locked in it. To be under a bond, and here it is, to do a thing. This is then the obligation that flows from ownership. This is the duty that is the result of one's life being owned by another. Paul knows he's not his own. He was bought with a price, but more, he was bought and what? Sent. This is the obligation of apostleship. This is the reality that he'll express in the Corinthian letter, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 16. Remember when he cries, what? Woe to me if I do not preach what? The gospel. Woe to me if I don't. This is not my own will, he would go on to say. This is a stewardship entrusted to me. In other words, how can I not do this? What slave doesn't do his master's business? That, Westmount, is the obligation found in a ministry of proclamation. Paul understood this, commissioned directly, firstly, by God to Gentile ministry. Now, you might be sitting there, if you're uncomfortable in evangelism, if you've been uncomfortable sharing the gospel, and you're like, well, that's Paul. I'm thankful I'm not Paul. It's different now. I mean, he did his thing, and we're just in a different time. Christian, I say, what of you? What of our charge? What of us? I remind us of this text. I've alluded to it before and today. Matthew 28, you know it. Jesus came and said to them, this is to the disciples before he would ascend, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And you might stop there and say, yes, to them, to them. But look at verse 20 or hear verse 20. Teaching them to what? To observe all that I've commanded you. You. In other words, you teach them to go as I have taught you and go and do. Is the Great Commission applicable to us? Absolutely. Are we under similar obligations in the Great Commission? Oh yes, very much so. Make disciples so that they will be baptized, taught, and obedient and go and multiply. Make disciples so that they will make other disciples who will baptize others, who will teach others. Others will be obedient and then others will be sent. And so Westmount, he must be proclaimed in all the world. God has placed us here in Peterborough, in the Kawarthas, in this province. This is the place that God has put us here. And listen to me, the nations are here, are they not? The nations are here. And if the nations are here, we know then, beloved, do we not? We know now what we must do. May God give us resolve to do it. Let's pray. Oh, God of the nations, you've called us to send us. Father, may our faith, like our Roman brothers and sisters, be proclaimed in all the world. Thank you for bringing the world to our doorstep. Give us resolve to greet the nations with the gospel of God in thankfulness and wholehearted service, fully supported by our local church family here and with an understanding of the obligation we are under as your slaves. 
Give us strength as you receive glory, we pray. Amen.